Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Tonaris podcast. As always, I'm joined by my good friend, Timmy Lang. Hi, everyone. And this week, we have a lovely guest to bring you. He is the GP in Aknahini. And he's also the doctor above in Cork Prison. Nick Flynn, how are you? I'm great, thanks, lads. Dr. Nick Flynn, should I say? No, Nick Flynn is fine. Doctor yeah. didn't yeah. come easy. We <laughs> give you your credit. But uh, thanks for coming out to meet us tonight. No, my pleasure. Thanks, and, lads. And um, can you let everybody know what you did to the three of us before we started? <laughs> mm. So uh, before we started, we just did a quick rapid uh, COVID-19 um, antigen test so to make sure that we could all sit down and have a ha- have a chat uh yeah. without the masks and uh yeah. decrease the risk so yeah yeah and we all passed with yeah. colors. every every Definitely, past yeah. some were braver than others <laughs> I, I, i've actually heard about the test you know a lot of people said that they, they have these things like a, a cotton bud mm-hmm. and it goes back and mm. you really don't you can't visualize it until you actually have it done yourself yeah, yeah. You know, I've, I've done a couple of hundreds, not a couple of thousands of them at this stage. Yeah, so the thing is to go slow and go gentle, like you know. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not yeah. the worst thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for the people that don't know, yeah, many will, many won't. Who are you, and where are you from? Uh, I suppose, uh, as you said, my name is uh, Doctor Nick Flynn. I'm a, a GP in in Nottinghamshire and in Cork City, and uh, uh, my practice is my CorkGP.ie. The the mothership or the main part of mm-hmm. the practice is up in up in Holly Hill. Uh, we've moved recently to uh, St. Mary's Health Campus, which is the old orthopedic hospital. Mm. Uh, big, shiny, kind of sex in the city building there mm. uh, with, a, with a lot of activity. So that, that's, that's great for the practice and great for the north side. Uh, but we also have centres in Granada, North Main Street, Union Quay mm. um, uh, and Douglas. So yeah. we're, we're, we're kind of, we're, mm. we have a fingerprint around the city really. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you get into becoming a GP? What was, uh, have you got uh, doctors in your family? No, well, the story there is my dad was a butcher, and uh, as soon as a cousin... Same thing, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as soon as a cousin of his said, heard I was going to become a doctor, I said, he can't be a surgeon anyway. <laughs> Nobody will trust him his father was a butcher. So. But um, no, I, I think like, the story about becoming a doctor really was I kind of always, in my head, decided I wanted to do medicine. And that wasn't, I don't think, through any like family connection or any great knowledge of what being a doctor was going to be. I think, looking back on it, it was probably as a kid, Mm-hmm. I, I said it once and probably somebody said, oh, geez, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. And so then I got positive feedback. And so then I never really changed from saying that because mm-hmm. everybody always seemed to think it was a good idea. So I, I went with it. So I wouldn't say that it was uh, in my DNA or ingrained to do it. Um, but then I was lucky enough to, I suppose, to get the points in college and to study it. Uh, Where and did you study? UCC? UCC, yeah. So, yeah, so um, 
some months being there more often than others. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so no, UCC and, uh, and great, great memories of, uh, of my time in UCC and great friends still from UCC. But um, when you qualify as, as a doctor with your degree in medicine, you're not really qualified for much. Even though you've been studying for six years, you've got kind of a basic degree and you need to do an intern year, which is a kind of a pre-registration year. And, the, and then even after that, if you want to, like, I suppose, work as a doctor, you have to do specialist training. So I, I knew fairly quickly the hospitals weren't for me. And thankfully, mm. as soon as I got a taste for general practice, I loved it. So, yeah. so do you know, from the day you walk into UCC in your first day, and you, like, how long does it actually take you to get underground as a GP in a, in a location somewhere? So the quickest you could do it now is uh, nine years. So it's five years. The, 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 the undergraduate medical course is now five years, but your postgraduate GP training is now four years. So it's nine years. Actually, one, one of the interesting things about that is that although it's nine years, um, you know, but when you're coming out as a GP, you're still really at the uh, very early in your learning curve. You know, lots of uh, the stuff you, like you learn in theory, you only really get to get good at it when you're doing yeah. practice, whether that's, you know, you know, dealing with addiction or whether it's, you know, dealing with, you know, suspected cancers or knowing how to get patients through the system safely. Yeah. But like, you can't learn that from books and there's only so much in training you can get it. It's really when you get into the job yeah. that it becomes something yeah. that you get good at. What's well, a big part of being a doctor? Do you have to have good, good social skills with people? They say to me that's the three A's is what you need yeah. to be a GP. You need affability, so that's basically you need to be reasonably sound enough anyway. Uh, you need to have availability, so people need to be able to get to you, yeah. right? And the third thing, the third A that you need is a little knowledge. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's <laughs> just a small, but yeah. So that's 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 the they're they're, they're the three A's. But uh, I, I think, in, like in the end of the day, you probably need experience as well. And you know, mm-hmm. I've been very lucky, uh, like in my training career and in my work career, I've worked with some very experienced, very sound doctors, like. Mm-hmm. You know, I trained with Dr. John Murphy and Carrie Galline, who be kind of a mentor of mine, and uh, would have like really shaped the the GP mm. I was going to become. And then very lucky, like George O'Mahony, my partner up in Holly Hill, is a you know really a mm. steady steady influence yeah. and a very experienced doctor. So it's been George great. would have been my family doctor for a long, long time. Me too. I remember when George started off was in Harvey Road mm-hmm. in a small room. It was like a little house to me, wasn't it? It was. It was literally, and I'm not kidding with you, it was probably that size, the whole little room he had. And the waiting room was the size of the yeah. table area here. Yeah. Was and tiny, it used to be like. packed, I mean <laughs> packed. And just to see how far they've came since then, they, they had the place in Holly Hill, which, was, which I thought that was a, a great building, was, yeah. you know. Yeah. For And now down in the orthopedic, and to see George growing, you know... Um, like growing old, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that too, that too. But you know, he he was a massive part of um, our family in general. Like with my mother and her her own issues, with mental health and stuff. You know, he would have been always. Yeah, I think if you, if, like, I mean, clearly we can't. But if you could, like, if you could ask Chrissy, like, uh, yeah. about where George started, she'd probably go back a little bit before that. Yeah. There was actually a caravan on the on the site where the. Um, where the, the you know the corporation housing office is and yeah. where that new surgery was, that on that site apparently there was a caravan, 
and Dr. Martin Maloney used to have a surgery there that George used to lock him in. So before they went to the end of Terrace House that you guys yeah. remember, there was a there was a temporary surgery in the caravan. So it really is quite a journey for Really? Yeah. I guarantee so, you somebody has a photograph of that. If they do send it on. If anybody has a picture of the caravan, we'd love it because we've got yeah. a couple of the house, but we've, we've none of the caravan. And we think that the practice has gone from like from that kind of yeah. infrastructure to like we've got like thirty six consulting rooms across the city yeah. now and know capacity for 1500 appointments a day mm-hmm. and like it's, it's it's some journey for, for yeah if, if anybody has would. the caravan that would be great yeah no it'd so be fantastic what's it like working in one of um the city's worst areas for drug addiction and benzos addiction um you know and mental health well i'd say that a couple of things about working in, in the north side of the city and, and within the north side, working in kind of Nottinghini, Holly Hill areas, is that it certainly has its challenges, you mm-hmm. know. Um, uh, I'd also so, say then that 85 or 90% of the time, like, it's, 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 a, it's a pleasure, you know. Yeah. And the overwhelming, uh, I suppose, feedback we get or the overwhelming kind of, I suppose, positive stuff about it is that people in general are very thankful for mm-hmm. small efforts. You know, so sometimes, you know, you do something for somebody and honestly, I mean, not to do it would be terrible, mm-hmm. but they're so thankful for it. Yeah. But the, but the challenge in, in, in that part of town is that maybe it was, maybe, maybe not even 20%, maybe 5, 10% of um, people, that for whatever reason, like if it's mental health reasons, if it's addiction reasons, you know, uh, if it's just maybe, you know, some, some people, uh, they, they, they just misbehave, right? Yeah. You know, so, so... And, and that 10%, they really cause a lot of, um, uh, I suppose, disharmony in the practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's more, proportionately more than if you were if you're in a different area. So mm-hmm. just, I mean, to be clear, like 85, 90% of the time and 85, 90% of the people, like an absolute pleasure. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, 5 to 10% just make it difficult. But in, they make it difficult in a way that it is quite a challenge. Yeah. And if you think back to when like you, you, you brought up George, I think that's fairly helpful. If you think back to when George was starting out, um, he was on his own for a long time. Mm-hmm. He got to the stage where he had a practice in Ballon College and he had a practice in Natnahini. And because he couldn't get help, right, he couldn't get a doctor to work in Natnahini. He had to close the Ballon College practice. Just yeah. because they didn't want to work up there? Didn't want to work there, right? Yeah, it was so. a true fear. Um, probably I, 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 stig- I, I, the stereotype as well the, st- the stereotype I think it's human nature if you're going to like look for the cushy number and yeah I, I roaches town <laughs> certainly an easier number you said that now not me look we can be honest like. we can we can but you know what um, and we might talk about the prison later but one of the things about working in the prison is that every year code is represented in the prison now some yeah. some disproportionately so but you know, people can go astray from all walks of life. But but coming back to the, to, 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 I suppose, to, to, to Holly Hill and the challenges, yeah, he, George couldn't get a doctor to work yeah. there, you know. He was, he was going to take an ad out in the um, the medical press. And it, was going to, it, it wasn't going to say where it was for. It was going to say, doctor wanted. Uh, practice is a fine view of the city. <laughs> because yeah. that, was, that was something positive you could say, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so I, I suppose I was the first addition to the practice. Um, and in a way, I don't know, I mean, you guys are YouTube superstars, right? But if you've seen the, there's a YouTube video about um, forming uh, a movement, about leadership. Uh, it's called uh, The First Follower. So in lots of ways, it's not the, the first person to do something that's important. Mm. It's the first person to follow that person. So mm. that gives other people the, 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 the yeah. encouragement that they can go to. Yeah. So when I was up 
when I when I joined very quickly, another doctor joined, and that was nothing to do with me. It was just the, that that other people could see, like the actually, safety yeah, numbers exactly. thing. You know, this is yeah. this can't be that bad, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and now we've got like across the practice, probably fifteen doctors, mm. you know, six or seven nurses, you know, probably on a or, or, or busy times twenty admin staff. That's mm. that's phenomenal, isn't it? So, yeah, it's it's a big organisation now. You know, with that comes a lot of responsibility. Responsibility to the patients, responsibility to the team. Um, like so, COVID has brought a lot of kind of challenges in that because, um, you know, if you're a if you're a smaller unit, it's probably easier to control the flow, easier to control yeah. how patients are accessing the service. You know, how who comes in, who doesn't, and and you have a more personal relationship maybe with some of the patients. Yeah. So we've found it a little bit of a challenge that we had to make sure that we created enough capacity on the phone and in face to face consultations. Uh, that all the necessary care could still take place, but we had to filter out some of the pastoral care we do, some of the social care that we do, and try and do that over the phone. So, mm-hmm. like we would have had patients that were um, kind of, I suppose, fitting us in right between mass and the super on a Thursday mm. because that's what they did, right? You know, especially when we were so close to the super, yeah. you could throw a stone over there, like, yeah. um, you know, someone on sure fitness in between the holly and the super. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> But do, you, do you think then that be, as as that surgery grew, that you kind of lost, uh, you lose that personal touch with certain people? That, that, that's a great uh, question or comment, and it's an observation, and, and I'm, I'm sure it's true. Um, but if you think of, of what we, the way we think about that is that we want to provide a service that the people need. Uh, and medicine has changed, so the population is getting older. Mm population is getting sicker as they get older mm. um, and also medicine has become more complicated so th- the treatments are more complicated they require more monitoring it takes basically it takes more time to do the actual medicine than it used to before mm. and, and people need more of that medicine mm-hmm. so so the, the old uh, image of the doctor with the um, you know the elbow pads and the pipe mm. <laughs> and uh, you know kind of sitting waiting for people to come like society needs that to change. It, no, it doesn't mean that the practice still can't be a caring place for people, and that's very important. And, and that's one of the things that the eighty percent of people who, who who are grateful for what we do, or eighty five that are grateful for what we do, you know, like a lot of time. And I learned this from George. Like people growing up in the north side, they they, they get a a, um, a mindset of kind of I can't do that, right? Mm. So. I can't be good at school, maybe, or you know, I can't go to college. I can't get a job. I, I'm, 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 yeah. This is my perception, right? Yeah. But what we try to do in the practice is we try and facilitate. Well, you can do it actually, mm. or you, you, you want to let it. We can sort that out for you. Do you would you have practices in, around the city in Carrigloyne and, and mm. Ballincollig and in Rochestown, right? The, the that kind of comment, like from somebody in the north side, oh, I can't, I'm not able, I can't get a job. Look, my nerves are bad. You would you hear similar similar things again, in different it, areas? It, again, people are the same everywhere, yeah. right? But but what's different is what percentage of people yeah. have that mm-hmm. have that feeling, have, have that notion. But but I, th- I think it's more than that, actually, genuinely, because I, I don't think it's just um, like a mental health, and I don't think it's just um, you know maybe physical health or personality. So it's keeping people out of the workplace. I think there is. Uh, you're starting at a minus mm-hmm. sometimes maybe going to a job interview or trying to get into college for, for when when you're from that part of town which isn't fair right but that's that's the fact uh, it's kind of like you know you, you, there's a 
very positive movement now to like empower women and to have more uh, female representation in government in, in, mm-hmm. in, in on, on corporate boards and everything. And what they what they say is that uh, in sports that young girls have to see it to imagine it and be able to do it. And in a way, I think of that about the north side. Yeah. I think that kids have to be able to see it to be able to do it. So if they don't see like their families going to college and working and, you know, kind of getting on. Well, then they can't imagine themselves doing it. There's a saying, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. And that's yeah. a well, good... That's, that's it's, kind of... It's, kind like, of. it's like your own story. You're, yeah. Like, you're, uh, you know, you're just by chance, you, you became a doctor because your father was a butcher. It wasn't that your dad was a, a doctor as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just yeah. something that you believed that you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. You know, like but if you're from if you're from Knocknaheeny and Holly Hill and other parts of the north side and some parts of the south side, where you mightn't have no history of education in your family or history of employment, or there might be a long history mm-hmm. of mental health and antidepressant and benzodiazepine use and all this, it's very hard then for that child to come out and say, mm-hmm. "I want to be a GP mm-hmm. or I want to be an academic," yeah. because it's so deviant, it's so yeah. different yeah. to what's the norm in that child's it, life. It, it's even about like. You know, where are the third level colleges? You know, yeah. so it's like CIT or MTU, it's over in Bishopstown, you know. Mm-hmm. UCC is, you know, on College Road, whatever. You know, so, so the fact that, that St. Mary's has now kind of risen from the ashes of the orthopedic um, and there is a UCC presence there, I think, is a good thing. Yeah. I think if there could be more of that, it'd be better. Like that, you know, kids go and when they go to the doctor, they see the UCC logo in their mm. backyard. I mean, that has to be, that has to be helped, right? And so it's a beautiful perception. campus. It up is. in St Mary's, it is. Yeah, it is. Like it's got huge potential there. You know, mm-hmm. there's um, uh, Heather House uh, is there. It's a, a community nursing home. It's got forty eight beds for uh, elderly patients and patients with um, uh, I suppose long term enduring mental health needs. Uh, but there's also that's been doubled in size. There'll be nearly a hundred beds there, probably by this time next year. There's the St Francis unit, which is a step down unit from the from the Mercy Hospital. Again, that's great to have that in the north side, right? And mm-hmm. in the community, it couldn't be any closer to the community. Yeah. And the idea there is that when patients are, are, have kind of run their course in the big expensive hospital with all the fancy scanners and all the well-paid doctors who deserve to be well-paid yeah. and nurses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, the, you know, so, so that when, you, when, when you can take them out of that kind of high-cost environment, and what they need actually is, is some physiotherapy, some nursing care, some maybe antibiotics, whatever, some rehabilitation, that they can come up to St. Francis unit and it costs like a fraction of the cost to have them there. So yeah. like as GPs, we support that unit and it's like quite, inter- it's fairly interesting work. Yeah. Um, and then you've got, the, of course, the urgent care centre for minor injuries. That's a very um, handy yeah, facility yeah. to have. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it, is, it is great. And you know, like, if, if if you could get like say the out of hours there South Dock or something, you know the, the campus has got huge potential, yeah. huge potential. Yeah. I'm sure, like in fairness to uh, the HSE and the politicians and, and the corporation, there is a there is a significant kind of uh, feeling of goodwill and and uh, and desire yeah. to, to to take advantage of that. So yeah. I'd say we'll see developments there over the next ten fifteen Excellent. years. Can I bring you back to the addiction okay. now because yeah. you're on the Tonari's podcast? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a little anecdote. Uh, <coughs> traditionally, George wouldn't have given out benzodiazepines too easy at all. You know, some of the old people mm-hmm. and legitimate people, as I yeah. would call them, you know, they needed them. They were prescribed the roach trees or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, so then we wouldn't have went to George. You know what I mean? So we would have went down the road to a doctor who I want name. And I can, like, when you were talking there about, you know, 85% of the um, service patients, sorry, mm-hmm. patients would have been legitimate, mm-hmm. and maybe you have 10%, maybe they are legitimate, but might cause hassle. 
I can remember, it made me think of in that surgery in, in Cathedral Road at the time, you would have regular people in there, you know, men and women, mm. sometimes elderly, um, and you would have a big gang of fellas like myself and girls mm-hmm. uh, wheeling and dealing in prescriptions, you know, in the surgery, blatant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'd say, and I know as George and yourself have expanded above, you, you get clients now because of the nature of the work and because uh, heroin came into mm-hmm. Cork, you have methadone prescribing and benzodiazepine prescribing probably maybe more than what was there traditionally. Do you get a lot of complaints from the women uh, and the men in the surgery that aren't, they mightn't understand addiction. Um, because I know people, are, there's a fear that comes with the pair methadone is being prescribed or, yeah. you know, Valium is being prescribed to the young fellas. Um, Probably, unwind it from that a little bit, that, that fear, right? Because um, like we had that. Yeah. Okay, so um, uh, we considered um, introducing uh, methadone prescribing the practice for probably two years before we did. And we had, we had that fear that we were going to kind of, in some way we didn't understand that we were going to be in trouble on ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. But we didn't understand the, 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 the nature of uh, methadone maintenance treatment as a, as a very successful way mm-hmm. for people's lives to be stabilized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we took the leap and did the training um, and started prescribing methadone, what we were surprised is that we were looking after these boys and girls anyway. Yeah. <laughs> they were coming to us anyway, but they were just going yeah. to a different doctor for, their, for the methadone, you know, and we hadn't known it. So it was far better for us to have all of the care mm. and to know about their heart attack and to know about you know, their asthma or their mm. other problems and to be able to include that in uh, you know, helping them with their methadone maintenance. So, yeah. so, <clears throat> so it's not just, I think, patients that need, and, and, and the wider public that need kind of education and, you know, uh, and that on, on addiction. I think it's, it's, it's also like as doctors, as I said to you at the start, when you qualify as a doctor, you're learning until the day you retire. Like, you know, yeah. it, it is always, always something new that you're, that you're going to find out. Um, as, as regards, you know, drug-seeking behaviour, which mm. I think is what, you're, yeah. what you're, you're, you're getting to, like, it's a very difficult part of the job and uh, difficult for lots of reasons, right? But um, one of the main reasons it's so difficult is that the, like, the geniuses who made these drugs they made really good drugs, right? Yeah. Um, so benzodiazepines, I would say, have to be among the most effective medication at uh, relieving anxiety that, yeah. that were ever invented. Yeah, that's 100%. Yeah. Better than heroin yeah. for that type yeah, of, yeah. you know, relieve, relieving yeah. that anxiety, yeah. that fear, relieving you of yeah. this low yeah. self-esteem, the yeah. confidence, just all gone. Yeah. And, 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 so bec- and, and that's in then is their problem because when somebody has that feeling and they, they learn from either borrowing a, a benzo or buying a benzo or whatever, wherever they get it. And they, they learn that, actually, do you know that? That tablet made me feel different to what I've ever felt for a long time. And then if, as the doctor, you're standing between them and what they perceive, because they've got their healthcare beliefs of, of legitimately accessing a medication that they think will help them. And it's pointless, or it's not pointless, but it's very difficult to, to get them to, to listen to the, you know, okay, a week of this might be helpful, you know, maybe every two, two or three times a month might be helpful. But if we go on with this for six or eight weeks and you get addicted to this, it'll, you'll become tolerant of it. You'll begin to feel like you felt before. They won't work. You'll need more for the same effect. Mm. You won't be able to stop it. You'll get withdrawal symptoms. And we now know from long-term use that they cause like cardiovascular problems, like heart I used attacks. To get, I used to get bad fits. 
I used to get bad fits. Yeah, and if you stop, if you stop them suddenly, you, you get withdrawal seizures. Like yeah. you know, so so they're incredibly dangerous medication as well as being very effective. Um, and I, I have an anecdote that I tell patients um, who are kind of in that benzo-seeking mode, right? And uh, what I say to them is, I say, look, I said that, like cause they're normally right, somewhere aged between you know, eighteen and forty or fifty, whatever. So. I'll say, look, have you got any kids or have you got a, a younger sibling or you got a niece or nephew? And hopefully they, they say yes and say, look, imagine you met that young person, right? They're in school and you met them and they're really, really anxious. They're, like they, they couldn't study, they couldn't go to school, they, you know, they couldn't go with their friends because they, they were so anxious and they really weren't enjoying life. And then imagine you met them like a month later and they were totally mellow, they're happy out mm. and uh, they were well able for stuff. And you said to them, well, you know, how, how, how have you sorted that out? And if they said back to you, now they're only 19, right? And they say back to you, well, do you know what? I'm drinking a bottle of Buckfast every night and it's freaking bang on. Yeah. It's ba- I, I'm, I'm sorted. What would you say to them? And most people go, it kind of drops, okay, well, al- like alcohol to solve your problems. Like we can see that's not bad. But I had one fella and he said to me, I'd, I'd say, fair play to you, young fella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so I really wasn't going to get anywhere with that with him. Oh. But, but, you know, so... so, <laughs> so. You know. You know, the one thing about uh, benzos, though, and, and other drugs is they are just a quick fix. Mm. You know, they don't solve the back, the, the yeah. problems that are behind everything else. Yeah. You're just pushing I, it down the road, aren't that, you? That's I, all. But, but I, you know, the challenge, we, like the difficulty we have, right, is that, and it's getting better, but it's still the difficulty we have is that when somebody comes into you, though, and they're on that journey, you know, and they are strung out with anxiety, mm. Even mm. leave drugs out of it for, for a minute. Mm. Like, you know, to say to them, I'll get you counselling in six months, which is what we used to have to say. Now, that's improved now, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, when you lads were coming through and up until maybe five or six years ago before the new system, this counselling in primary care service kind of arrived, which is very very effective at getting quick appointments. But before that, we had no access to quick counselling. So we had no mm-hmm. non-drug treatment. You know, so, like, it's, 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 it's almost counterintuitive when you're in the helping role to leave somebody walk out without anything. So when you're going back to how, how things were so bad and clearly like you know some practices um the line in the sand was it like you know it was like what, what do they say in that that film the circle of trust is a dot you know yeah, like, yeah. like it's so far away um but so so so, so clearly there were some practices that 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 that, 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 that disregarded safety but but some well-meaning doctors like uh and myself included probably on occasion have prescribed it out of having no other option to go yes mm. that's the way it's just going to get and, yeah. and then when you get there you know, like two months passes mm-hmm. quickly, you mm-hmm. know, and we've got, we do other things as well. Yeah. And all of a sudden the person is taking it for two months and now you've got to try and get them get to withdraw from it. And yeah. Do you know if up. somebody presents to you, um, you know their background, right? Mm-hmm. And you know this person has been sexually abused or neglected or had a very tough upbringing and they come to you with addiction problems and stuff um, and you think that... Maybe Valium or a short course is annex in the acute time mm-hmm. would be beneficial mm-hmm. until something else more longer term. Mm-hmm. Have you the capacity or is there facilities there for uh, some intervention in terms of um, psychotherapy tra- trauma to help that person work through the trauma? Or is it a huge waiting list and are you, is your hands so, tied? So there, there is this counselling and primary care service which is satisfactory but it, it, it could do more now that's not a reflection on the people working in the service it's just, just every, service is available, every like. service is limited by resource yeah. exactly mm-hmm. so so patients who are not currently attending uh mental health services not currently attending psychiatric service uh can attend the counseling primary care service for eight sessions um 
And, you know, for some people, you know, that might be enough. But for a lot of people, you know, and I don't know if you've personally experienced it, but, like, some people, they, they need that crutch to go back to every now and again. So mm-hmm. and it's one of the areas where, where people who can't afford and people who can afford are really disadvantaged. So if you can afford, like, 70 euros every three months or every two months, to go back and kind of top up with the counselling. Mm. It's just, it grounds, it helps people to ground themselves, yeah. to remind themselves of what the good habits they have to do, the good thoughts they have to have in their head, the healthy yeah. thoughts and healthy habits. And sometimes people just need that reminder, right? You know, mm. and it's, it might be the same chat every two or three months, but it, but it helps. And that service isn't there mm. for, um, you know, for patients with, who can't afford to pay for it, unfortunately. Now, when it comes to somebody coming in acutely distressed like that, like the, the acute system, it, it does struggle to manage that, right? Because what, what are GPs in general? Like, we're principally diagnosticians. We're, 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 a lot of our training goes into teaching us how to diagnose. Diagnose uh, and refer. Diagnose and refer. Diagnose and treat and maybe refer when, we're, when, when we've got to the, the limit of our treatment, yeah. you know? But we, we're, we're not, we're certainly very few of us psychotherapists. Yeah. So without having access to that psychotherapy, well, then you are referring. You know, and, and how do you get access to psychotherapy? You have to refer through the mental health services. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, that's not the appropriate pathway, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they don't need to be see a psychiatrist. They don't have, like, significant depression or, you know, or, or psychosis. So, they, they, could, so they, they could benefit from, like, psychotherapy without having to go through the gateway of the psychiatrist. You know, in a perfect world, would you like a, psychi- a psychotherapist in, an, in your office space above, in your facility... Would you like a, a resident psychotherapist that could deal with somebody in a brief intervention type of a way? I think that would be very helpful, right? Yeah. But well, it wouldn't necessarily need to be in my surgery because all surgeries are different sizes. Now, we're probably big enough that we would have somebody fairly busy. Yeah. But, you, but if, again, it comes down to resources. Like if, if, if the resources were there and, you know, and there was enough uh, psychotherapists uh, that patients could access in a tiny manner well that'll work but we're a long way off that mm. I'll just bring you back there to um, you spoke about the primary care I remember when I gave up the drugs nine years ago I don't know was it yourself or George I went up there and I was just after coming down off a of massive cocaine and, and benzo binge as well and alcohol um, and I was in an awful lot of more trouble again and I went up and I, I didn't know what to do Mm-hmm. You know, and and I went up and I just said, "Listen, I'm struggling. I my I I don't know what to do with myself. I'm 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 a few days off drugs, you know. Um, but all I want to do is use, and I need I I I don't want to. I want to try to get my family back, and and I want to try to, because I prison facing me as well at the time, um, and I was put straight onto a counselor down Heron House. And I had the eight, the eight sessions, and from there they were able to get me into a treatment centre. Mm. You know, I was talking to a young person there yesterday on the phone, and they were just asking me, like, they're, they're off drugs at the moment, and they're struggling with the mental health, you know. My advice to anybody would be, like, if, if, if you're struggling with a mental health issue, uh, my advice is, is try to use some form of meditation. I know in some cases they might need a medication because it might so whatever pain they're they're in emotional pain is severe. But the med have you ever ever um, said to a patient take up mindfulness? We have these mindfulness classes here. Um, 
Do you know, yeah, or is that kind of... No, no, of, of, of course we do it all the time, right? Every yeah. single day, you know, we do it. Um, but if you're to rewind there to when you came down to the doctor, and, and but this was, your, this was your road to Damascus moment, right? Yeah. And seems to have been the one. But, yeah, the, the, the challenge for us there is, right, that if we... When somebody comes into us like that, in that situation... Like benzos have a street value, right? Mm. So I don't know, D10s were two euros, a D5 mm. is worth one, a D2 mm. is worth 50 cents, whatever it is. I, I don't know what it is, but they have a street value. You're, you're, you're close there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, so, so we, we, the challenge for us is right that do we, are we making this situation worse mm. by enabling you? Mm. Are we becoming another cog in the enabling wheel for you in that situation? Yeah. Because at some stage, Somebody has to say no, this has to stop. I remember going in and actually saying, I don't want any meds. I, 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 don't, I, mm. I took a, an antidepressant all right mm. until I went into prison. I was mm. prescribed that for a few months mm-hmm. just to, to help me in yeah. the background, you know. Yeah. Um, but I came off and then when I went know, in. That's, that's a fantastic story to be at that point and, yeah. and, and, to, come, and to come back. See, when it works well, when the person is ready as well, yes. doesn't it? Yes, that was, like, the, t- that was the, the thing about it. And so you, 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 were, you, you were kind of ready for the road. But for every one of those consultations we have, right, we have a hundred where the only thing going on behind the eyes is... D10s. Yeah, give me, I'll, give, I'll get my prescription. Mm. And, and, and we don't know what happens then, yeah. right? So we can phase the prescription, which means they can only get a day at a time or whatever. But mm. so... So we do we give the prescription and then they take the the, the, the the diazepam and cocaine and heroin and you know so we're just adding to the cocktail or actually is this the time that they really need it and want it yeah. so like you know it's big call it's very it? well it's it's very difficult it's possible it's, it's, it's very it's very difficult uh, but 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 really you know what what I tend to do is more often than not look say no you know that that, that if you if, like if you want if this if this is for real go away, don't use for a day or two, and come back with an advocate, come back with your mother, come back with your wife or mm. your father, whoever it's going to be, right? Mm. Come back, and then we'll have, we'll have a chat, we'll have a three-way chat, and that person, that other person in the room will tell me if, if, yeah. if, you've, if you are changing, if you have changed, mm. or they have an opportunity to tell me, because if you don't have that collateral history, you know, you, you really are shooting in the dark. Yeah, yeah because yeah. drug addicts, yeah. Are very very good at telling you lies. Yeah, like, you know, yeah, Trump between the age of seventeen <laughs> and well, and also I've seen <laughs> I've seen I've seen family members come in and oh, lie yeah. as well a collective <laughs> effort. between the ages of seventeen and twenty seven, yeah. I spent most of my time travelling Cork City and County on the bus with money collecting scripts off doctors and trying to plan doctors. No, most of the time, no. Yeah. You come across that, you know, yeah. look, if you're serious, we can work yeah. something out yeah. and come back. But you don't want to hear yeah. that. Yeah. You want to see him pull yeah. out the pen. Yeah. And it's not on, um, it's all um, on, a, on a white piece of paper, you know, it's mm-hmm. not official, they say. Mm-hmm. And you go to different chemists all the time. The holy trinity was uh, Xanax or Dazepam, Toro Hypnol in the night, and four DFs. You know, so you're 120 DFs, 90 D10s, mm-hmm. and 60 Rohypnol. That's what you're always looking for, you know. You might yeah. trade the, the Rohypnol for Halcyon. You're giving all the secrets. We're no I know, I'm just trying to be transparent. But I tell you how much has changed. 
Uh, Rohypnol is no longer available and dihydrocodeine or DFs are, are, no, long, are no longer but available. But I'm showing my age there, so... <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> but, but, I, but those scripts that you described there, because we calculated it, one of those scripts is worth about 340 euros. I know, that's what I'm saying. Jeez. So, like, what happened there is, like, let's say if I went to... If, I throw, if you throw enough darts, you're going to hit the bullseye, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it's a, it, it takes a lot of time and effort to go around Cork City and County but occasionally you get good doctors that once they see the 50 euros, they start writing, right? And they won't name anybody. Good, a good good doctor being yeah. an oxymoron. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, but the, the thing was, the, the diazepam or the Xanax, the hypnol and the DFs, you know, because the DFs then, they were expensive. People used to buy them. People with uh, chronic pain addiction, they'd buy the DFs like that off you, you know? And we used to trade them and stuff like that. But i tell you one funny story, right? The story was, this now when I was 17 or 18, before I had been to prison, so I was young. Um, and the story was that, our, our spoof, our Billy story, as we used to say, go into the doctor, tell the doctor you're only after getting out of prison, you were on this, that and the other in the prison, I know you've no GP, and you're just looking to get on your feet. And that was it, you know. Mm. Most of the time, now you get ran out the door. Uh, but sometimes it works. But I went into this doctor, right, in town. And uh, gave the story. I'm only after getting out of prison. You know, I'm, uh, I was on uh, tour of hypnol in the night. Three, three days of pam tens a day, and four day f one one eight. And uh, he says, "What prison were you in?" I says, "Cork prison." He says, "I am the GP for Cork prison." <laughs> <with> Con <laughs> Murphy. <laughs> Oh, no better man. Yeah, oh, stop. I don't know. He ran out the door. Oh, stop. Do you know the way the pharmaceutical companies in America, Nick? I know now we're going off track a little bit. Um, how much power they have in pushing meds and doctors, basically, to, set, to, to get rid of them. Have, have they got that much power back here in this country? Not, not as much. I think the States is a, is a, is a different healthcare system. Uh, yeah. A uh, lot of it funded by insurance. Um, the pharmaceutical companies. I, I mean, I don't know for sure, right? But the pharmaceutical companies can market prescription drugs they directly. Can. And, and, directly on, to, and an ad on the telly, you yeah. can get like, are you suffering with this, that, and the other on the trope, a hundred symptoms, yeah. and then start advertising and ask, uh, you know, opiates so, so, and stuff. Yeah, so you have a lot of, you know, the Tylenols, the paracetamol, codeines, all that, the tramadols. Mm. I think would have been marketed heavily, um, and the oxynorms and the, the, you know, the. The, 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 the morphine uh, drugs that were marketed heavily directly to the to the patients or the consumer in the, in the states you know so mm-hmm. everything from being like not just on telly or radio on bus shelters in magazines yeah. like it, it's everywhere so it's, it's a slightly different uh, culture I don't think they have that much influence I've been naive to say they don't have a lot but they, they do product placement and so like they do, like you know, take uh, they have kind of advertorials and glossy magazines and that stuff. But it's not the same. Like yeah. I, I tell you, how 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 different it is is that um, Viagra you can buy now buy over the counter, right? Yeah, not that so, I need it. Like <laughs> <laughs> so, I saw that on I saw the advertisement for it on on TV, and it was it's, it, it 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 was just brand new that it was available over the counter. And straight away, it, it was foreign to me. Like, what are they doing advertising that? Like, because in my head, if, if they start doing that, well, then you'll have a queue of patients kind of asking for that medication. And that's putting the cart before the horse because mm. the diagnosis comes first mm. and then the treatment. But if you start marketing directly to, to the patients, well, then the patients will want the treatment sometimes before the diagnosis is confirmed or clarified. Yeah. Mm. Can I ask you something about, uh, I suppose, a relatively recent phenomenon? And I don't know if you experienced it. But young men presenting with issues relating to steroid use, have you come across that? And uh, is it yeah, that a li- prevalent? A, a, a little bit. Um, uh, I want to be careful because I don't want to identify anybody. Of but, course. But, but we have had steroid-related complications in uh, in patients 
varying from the uh, very kind of benign and, and almost uh, ridiculous, uh, you know, from an uh, injection into the thigh getting infected to, you know, we've had we had steroid-related cancers, you know, so... Oh, yeah. yeah, so uh, very dangerous, like, so if anybody is watching the podcast... Yeah, that's why I bring it up. And, and if they are using uh, yeah. steroids for, for, for anabolic steroids for training, incredibly dangerous, you know. Mm. Uh, mood changing makes you aggressive, affects your sexual performance, mm. you know. Does it, um, does it actually comes, affect you having kids? And, and comes with, it can do, yeah, and, and comes with long-term, mm. like, genuine long-term risk, uh, increased risk of cancer. We've seen that in the practice. Okay. Yeah, no, thanks for that. Yeah. that I, just before we move on to the prison, the juicy part, uh, I just wanted to cover that, you know, mm-hmm. because it's important, mm-hmm. because there is a lot of men and women out yeah. there getting yeah. caught up with the Instagram, the body and all this stuff, and they start using the, um, all that. So you're the you're the doctor in the prison as well. Yeah, our practice cover, covers the prison. Yeah, so yeah. we'd be up there now uh, for maybe seven or eight years in total. We'd have the hiatus in the middle, but we're, 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 we go out on TR for there for a year or two. <laughs> oh, this game, <laughs> uh, it's possible now that a lot of the prisoners might be watching this. Okay, so um, <laughs> choose your next words carefully. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's it like uh, being a doctor in a GP? Obviously, or being a doctor in the prison. Obviously, we know. Like, if you're in prison, your life hasn't been gone too well, do you know what I mean? And you're coming up against very hurt people. They might be angry on any given day. Mm. They might have men- a lot of mental health issues. Like, yeah. it's, I'd say it can be a challenge. And Yeah, so, so it, it, I mean, it is a challenge, right? So, um, I suppose a couple of things uh, about the prison. The biggest difference between uh, healthcare in the prison and healthcare in the community is if in the community you decide... Uh, Nick Flynn is not the GP for me. You have a choice of 200 GPs in Cork. You mm-hmm. just say, Nick, goodbye, and never see you again. If that happens in the prison, if the relationship breaks down, like, you know, you, that's, I'm still the GP, right? So mm-hmm. you, there's, there's nowhere else to go. And that's a tricky one. So it's, it's, it's important that you try and preserve the relationships with, with, with the lads as much as you can. And, and in general, that, that pretty much does happen. Uh, for people who haven't been uh, in the prison, the the process by which people I suppose come into prison is is called committal so you're committed to, to, to prison mm-hmm. and within 24 hours of committal um, all uh, prisoners have a statutory entitlement to review by a, a medical doctor uh, if it's a murder charge that I think is, goes down to 12 hours and it can be with a psychiatrist as well um, so that first that, that committal interview is, is very important um, that's where the risk is kind of like you know uh, landing an airplane, <laughs> um, so it's it's it, the flying the plane is fine. It's it's, it's the landing it and the taking off the, the tricky bits. And so that it, the lads are landing in in, in prison, and particularly uh, the young guys whose lives are chaotic and who are in there because of crime related to drugs and have been using. Uh, like they can come in like uh, having had like a lot of heavy uh, and recent drug use, and all of a sudden it stops. Mm. And uh, like you identified earlier. Uh, James, that that's a risky time. You, mm. you said you, you had withdrawal seizures from from, yeah. from benzodiazepines, like so that can happen with the, with, with opiates, with uh, with, the, with the benzos, with alcohol. And so it's important that the the prisoners that arrive in have the opportunity to consult with a doctor, have an opportunity where it's appropriate to get um, a methadone substitution treatment or get Librium, because alcohol or benzodiazepine abuse, and have an opportunity where other kind of healthcare. Uh, issues can be addressed 
that are that are urgent because obviously yeah. the first day you're not they haven't arrived in hospital right sometimes, yeah. sometimes you'd explain that to the lads like they've, they've they've been saving you know their ingrown toenail for two years know, yeah. <laughs> or their <laughs> teeth yeah. the dentist is the big one yeah. well. <laughs> and they want to sort it the day yeah. they come in but uh so so you got you so so, so you've that committal bit but once that committal bit and uh, is 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 over and and lads are in jail for um i'm saying lads because i've never worked in, in a female prison um once that committal bit is over and, and the lads are settled down, like there are just about zero benzodiazepines prescribed in the prison. Yeah, I agree. And, and that's why, like, so, I, I, was, I, I listened to those stories, right, of lads telling me, you know, uh, I was in the prison, I was on D10 three times a day in the house scene at night. And, but you go up there and you couldn't run the prison, right, <laughs> if, mm. if, you, if that was going to be the, yeah. the case. They were just, it, just, it, it would be impossible to run it. So, so there's no uh, benzodiazepines just about prescribed unless somebody is acutely distressed maybe from bereavement um you know or on committal they need something to to, to alleviate the symptoms of withdrawal and and de-risk the possibility of a seizure so they, they would be situations where you might get it but other than that like you know the being a doctor in the prison after that committal period yeah. same as the doctor i think else. i think that story of i was on this and that in the prison might be a legacy of spike island where that kind of prescribing actually did go ahead did it, yeah it did yeah yeah i wasn't in spike uh-huh. no i just want to say that now yeah. but i know people that was in spike and yeah. they were that's interesting i didn't know that now. but uh, one thing there can i give you my experience yep. of uh committal um generally i'm after being on heroin for the period of time and yep. benzodiazepines but because I wasn't on methadone on the outside, mm-hmm. right, I wasn't given any methadone when I go in. I get Librium, but when you're withdrawn from heroin or opiates, Librium doesn't do much for you. Mm-hmm. Inside in the cell then where at the time, I'm talking about uh, between, the, between 2006 and 2012, um, this was kind of it. Into a cell then you've no toilet, you've no running water. This is Cork prison. This is Cork prison now. Yeah. You know, and cold turkey, mm-hmm. and I all normally looking back, I think it's actually inhumane to leave somebody in a cell like that. And I'm not saying, and I'm mm-hmm. blaming anybody, yeah. no, no. Just, these are just the systems. Mm-hmm. But is it still like that? You still have to be on methadone on the outside to get methadone on no, the inside. I, I, actually, Joy, to, to be fair, it was even worse than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were on methadone uh, uh, in the community, methadone maintenance community, uh, or if you're on methadone maintenance in another prison and you transferred to Cork. Up until probably maybe ten years ago, even on maintenance, it wasn't renewed, right? Um, now that when we went there first, uh, we were either just starting or had just started to prescribe in the community, so we we, we didn't know. Uh, mm. We weren't very experienced methadone prescribers, right? So, but after a couple of weeks, it became apparent, like that, like what was this, you know? Yeah. Because. It would be like a, a diabetic coming in. And you didn't give them their insulin, or, yeah, because there's sick people that need medication. Yeah. You know, no, and just because they're yeah. seeing it happening in the prison, yeah. I see fellas yeah. being moved from one prison to another, yeah. and they're meta- not getting their methadone. You know, yeah. in 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 the second prison, yeah. you know, it's um, and they've been very sick. Yeah, they would be kicking doors and they're banging. It's for them. It's it's. Yeah, no, no. It's completely it, it is not, it, it has changed, thankfully. And uh, if you're on methadone maintenance, um, when in the community, when you come into the prison, uh, your methadone will be re-prescribed. There's no issue. You just have to provide a urine confirming that, yeah. and, uh, and 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 the chemist dispensing it. And as long as those two two boxes ticked, it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the lads who are uh, not on uh, methadone and who are using heroin, uh, smoking or injecting, uh, if there's a pattern of use. Uh, and if the urine is positive for opiates, 
and they request it, you can get a methadone detox. Uh, and while you're on the, met- while you're on the methadone detox, um, if they want to, to go on to methadone maintenance, it's something that we can discuss and it's something we can facilitate for them. But going back to that kind of methadone bit, like, like George and myself have been through, as you can imagine, we've been through a lot of battles, right? I can um, imagine, yeah. And the practices have expanded. <laughs> and if you were to ask either of us what is the thing that we are most proud of um, in our careers to date, it would be that we were part of the change in court prison that facilitated the prescribing of medicine. Yeah, I think the period I'm talking about is pre-ye and yeah, maybe yeah. just at the start of ye. Because I remember uh, going to George, you know, around the end of when I was starting to go in and out, you know. And, um, yeah, yeah 2008, was, was it? I think the last time I was in was in 2012. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's pre-ye, really. Um, but we're glad to hear that it's kind of, it's better these days, you know, because well, it's, just it's, it's now standardised across the prison estate, yeah. right? So it's the, it's the same, you get the same service, and this is what healthcare has to do everywhere. You get the same service in Cork as you get in Castlereagh, as you get in Portlaoise, Limerick, Mountjoy, you know, Cloverhill. Yeah. It's 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 the same service. But just co- coming back to the um to to the benzo bit in the prison, right? Yeah, and, and where it gets difficult because I I think it's nice to have the opportunity to talk about like doctors don't we don't pretend we know it all, right? And, and we try and practice good medicine that benefits our patients, keeps our patients safe, and actually keeps ourselves safe as well because we've got rules that we need to abide by to have a, the license to practice yeah. medicine if we don't follow those rules or license gets removed. So uh, I've one lad in particular, but this has happened a lot of times, but one lad in particular uh, because the first time I heard that the phrase three hots in a cot, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, he, I've been, I, I was his doctor up in the prison and I knew zero Benzo. I was also his doctor in the community before he went to the prison. And in fairness, he was on probably, I don't know, 15, 20 milligrams of diazepam a day, divided doses, and probably a sleeping tablet before he went in. And uh, then he went in and clearly had nothing. And he was in for a good 18 months. Now, he was a bit of a chancer, right? He was, you know, he's one of the lads, right? And he, like, so, so um, he wasn't menacing or anything, but he was just, he'd be a bit pushy. Um, and so he did the, he did the time anyway, and he came out. He wasn't out like two seconds, you know, he was up. I want my prescription. And I said, well, you're, what do you mean you want your prescription? You haven't had this. No, it's my prescription, my medication. I want my medication. This is the kind of rhetoric that you get that you have to try to help last move beyond. So I said to him, I said, no, come on. I said, you've had the last year and a half, you've had no benzos. And you're asking me now to restart the problem for you by prescribing them again. We're not going there. And, you know, he actually made a very coherent argument for prescribing them. He said, but what do you mean I, I, I had no benzos? Sure, I had no stress. I was up in the prison. I, I had three hots in the cotton. Yeah. You know, I had the exercise yard, and I, I had the lads. I came out now, and she's wrecking my head. And mm. like, no offense to any yeah, of, yeah. of the partners, but this is what he was saying. And you know, I've got the kids' communions are coming up, and Christmas is on the way. I've got enough to find all this money, and I, I'm totally stressed. You know, yeah. so so he was kind of making the point to me that yeah. prison was easier than real life. Well, can I give you a bit of insight into that because yeah. I can relate 100 percent with that man. Um, when I was in the prison environment, back in my day anyway, Cork was a relatively clean prison. Mm-hmm. And the dubs, if there's Dublin prisoners watching this, they would traditionally come to Cork to dry out, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they come down to go to the block and, and whatever, you know. But Cork was a relatively clean prison. Um, in Cork prison, I could be drug-free for a period of months. And 
not even want drugs, mm-hmm. you know, because I had access to my family because they weren't worried about me. I was going to the gym. I had my three hats in a class. I played football in the nighttime. I went to school. I had the structure. I had safety, mm-hmm. security and all these things. I wasn't bound to drug dealers or doctors or deaths or nothing. I didn't want the drugs there. It's not as soon as I get out the gate, you know, all that fear I was talking about a while ago, the anxiety, the insecurity, the self-esteem, the guilt, the shame, Mm -hmm. everything just floods back and it's like taxi straight to the doctor. Sorry, lads, our cameras got caught. But I was talking there about that that, that reference you made to that guy who didn't need the tablets in the inside, Mm -hmm. but on the outside. And then I was talking about, you know, when when you're in the when you get out you've all those issues reasons why you use drugs are there still waiting for you and now you need that crutch you know and it's the, the only coping skill you probably had learned to use on the outside you know yeah so um i just to go back on what james just said there i remember um the last time i was in prison you know i had a similar similar thing happened to me i came out you know i was in there i was meditating two hours a day i was in this school, things were going really well. I was after getting calm. You know, my legs weren't hopping anymore. I came out of prison. I was introduced to a woman, my wife now. You know, I had to get to know her. I had two kids. I had to get to know them. I had the stresses of life, the financial stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I had all the shame, the guilt of all the things that I'd done in my uh, addiction. I had to go to the doctor. I, I was actually thinking of taking my own life. Um, and I had to go to the doctor. We sat down. We had a great chat. Um, and, and at the time, the two of us came to the conclusion that it was probably best that I went down an antidepressant mm-hmm. for a bit. You know, and I was in recovery as well because I would never take a, 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 any form of anything that would, would affect mm-hmm. me on a daily basis, you know, would mm-hmm. give me a high or anything. I, I took that for one day. You know, and and somebody talked me out of it. You know, they talked me out of taking them, right? So that's one thing. I just want to go back to one more thing, right? You know, the way people come into the prison and they're they refer to you. They have to see. Should there not be a psychiatrist or a psychologist do the exact same thing for every single prisoner? Uh, I don't think for every single prisoner. Fair, mm-hmm. right? I tell you, I tell you. Honestly, why I don't think for a single prison, I think, because, like, healthcare, you have to want it, right? Mm. Um, and, and, like, so some of the, and I have to need it as well. So, like, some of the prisoners don't need it, right? Genuinely. Some lads come in there, whether it's fraud, whether it's, you know, a sexual offence, whether it's, you know, uh, an assault, you know, after, you know, some people are, 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 are what I'd say, incredibly unlucky, you know. Yeah. You know, they have, f- they have four, four or five points. They have a fight outside, and somebody cracks their head in the curb. You know, and they end up on a manslaughter charge. You know, mm. uh, now that person probably does need psych- psych- psychological help, but more, more people don't. You know, and, and they genuinely don't. And, and coming back to the young fellas, a lot of young fellas don't want it, mm. and and you have to want it, right? I mean, like you know, your the resources in the prison are finite as well, uh, and even if they weren't. You know, psychology doesn't work unless you're willing to go the journey, right? Mm. That's true. And and, yeah. and, and, and like we see lots, <clears throat> like, I, like I suppose when I was talking at the start about general practice and you've got your basic qualification, your GP, but the longer you practice, hopefully the better you get and the more you learn. The more you learn about medicine, the more you learn about human condition as well. And I can see now, uh, and 
like your guys, your your generation are probably one part of what I see, right? So I saw, as a young doctor, very young doctor, I saw you guys coming through and like your generation, not you personally. And in that generation, I saw the chaos and I saw the, the Friday evenings, guys strung over the chairs asleep, you know, mm. in the waiting room. Um, and I saw, you know, the damage. I saw, like I saw some of your peer group with brain damage from overdoses. Mm. You know, it was one one poor lad who was a very nice man right and uh, I was probably the most important person in his life for about six months right and he uh, was brain damaged for an overdose and I was doing a house call one day he was shortly after he came out of the hospital and I stopped the car to talk to him he didn't know who I was mm. I couldn't believe it like I mean you know, it was just it was so sad and he's like probably now he's in his 40s right mm. um, you know I have another another patient again a very very nice man very soft man um but very much like prone to addiction, his personality. And uh, again, he used to be up to me every week because we had him on a weekly prescription. And bloody hell, you'd see him probably two days in between as well because he wanted more, right? Mm. Um, and <laughs> then he went off to, uh, to Table Lodge. Table Lodge was four weeks. And like, even though I was, I'm, I was very fond of him, right? And he wasn't, like, he, was, he wasn't abused or anything. I kind of had a sense of relief because those four weeks, well, he, somebody was going to help him. It wasn't yeah, going to be yeah, in. Yeah. And he was probably in the right place for that help. Two days later, he turned up again. I said, God, I said, hack it. exactly. I said, what are you doing here? And he said, uh, they were mean to me down there. Now, I used to work in Table Lodge, right? And you guys probably know that group. I went through well. it. Yeah, so, so, it yeah. So, so, so part of that is that, like. Confrontation. Yeah, like, if the doctor tells you, like, the doc, like I, I've said to patients, you know, like, you're ruining your life. You're, you know, these, these drugs are becoming the, the reason for your life. And that, that's not right. And all the stuff you say to people, right? And then I've had people say back to me, sure, that's fine for you. I wonder if they said to me, you probably have uh, like four bedrooms and three toilets in your house. I don't know what difference that made, right? But but that was that was how he uh, he was expressing that. So you're probably fine, right? People think the doctor's always fine, by the way. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges in being a doctor is that, like, th- literally the arse will fall out of your life as you walk into work, but you still have to do six or seven hours mm. where you're trying to solve other people's problems. Yeah. yeah. But so 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 like you get these these, these group of people and come back to, to, to the lad that came up from from Table Lodge about doing it. He actually missed his chance because he died about a month later. Oh, yeah. yeah, like that was probably his chance. I have another lad, again, haven't seen him for a couple of years, but again, I'd be really, really fond of him. Um, and I'd learned loads from these guys. Um, so he's a guy that got a compensation payment. Look, it wasn't 75 grand. I'm just going to say 75 grand for anonymity. Through a year, he went through his 75 grand and another about 20 in debt, right? And he had a car. He was going to try and sell the car. Couldn't sell the car, so he burnt the car out trying to get the insurance money. Couldn't get the insurance money. Now he had no car and twenty and twenty grand debt. Mm. Um, I met him. Actually, prison saved his life. I'd say. I met him in the prison, and I didn't recognize him. And I, could, you know, like I, I knew him really well. He had lost so much weight. He was like honestly, he was like like skin stretched over a skeleton. His yeah. body mass was gone so low, and that committal to prison definitely stopped the cycle of drug abuse and chaos in his life and he actually has done quite well yeah well that's good that's great to hear and you know when you're talking about overdoses there like i've lost a lot of friends you know i lost Mm. a couple of very close friends and a lot of acquaintances and people i knew from the local area you know through drug use and overdoses stuff like that and it's actually very sad you know it's so tragic one thing that used to scare the shit out of me and the reason i didn't go on methadone for a long time was because Benzodiazepine was my primary drug of choice, you know, and I used to consume a lot of benzodiazepines. And when some people ask, they wouldn't believe the amount that people could actually take, you know, in terms of like mm-hmm. 
50, 60 volume in a day type of thing, you know. Um, as I said it before, my dad used to like me saying, you're the only man in Cork to wake up and take 10 sleeping tablets. But um, I used to be afraid of methadone because I know of a good few people that have overdosed on benzos and methadone. It's toxic together. Uh, what is it about methadone and benzos that tips people into overdose? Uh, it's probably due to your respiratory depression, I would say, mm. most likely. But it's a very um, common perception that patients have about methadone. They don't want it for whatever reason. They, they have their healthcare beliefs that they don't, they don't want it. But I find that counterintuitive and I don't really understand it mm. because what's the alternative is that when they get the cravings, they're going to use... I'll tell you why. Carbon. Do you know what it is? All right, you have this side. My perception was because I was afraid of the overdose because I know a good few people that have overdosed when you're taking methadone and benzos, the risk for overdose goes way higher than benzos on their own, and I can assume a lot of benzos. But there's also the thing of when you're taking heroin, if you go cold turkey, four or five days of hell, you're fine. Do you know what I mean? You're fine. You're out of it. This, the withdrawal is gone. So when the you want withdrawal is gone, but but, but, yeah. but your your you are, your habit desire to reuse is still there. The mindset of the mindset is not around recovery; it's around uh, sobriety, and there's a difference. In four or five days, I can get myself clean from heroin. The withdrawals will be gone, and I'll be grand. Right? That's a, the wrong mindset to have. But when you're on methadone, you're on that. That's, there's no quick fix coming off that. Like you, you don't go cold turkey off methadone. The withdrawals are way longer and way worse. Um, and when you're on methadone, it's just a very long process. And psychologically, it can be very isolating for people. Um, and it can be very, um, yeah, it can affect people psychologically because you're bound to the chemist and you're bound to the GP. And there's no like four or five days and you're out of it, you know. So I think that that, that might explain it. Yeah, I I think if 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 it was a if it was true to say that uh, a heroin addict, right, um, or even the majority of heroin addicts, not all of them, were able to do that, I think that might that might be true to say. But that's not that's not my experience of it. No. Like heroin, uh, I haven't used bad language yet, but heroin is a shit drug. Yeah, right? yeah. it's so cheap. You know, like the next crime gets you your next. Yeah, fifty bag or whatever it is. I don't know what 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 that is even, but you know. So, uh, so like all the crimes, you know, whatever it is, fund fund your next one. So whether it's robbing from your grandmother or grabbing a handbag or robbing from a shop, yeah. that gets your next one. And then it's so addictive, right? So it's yeah. like. But uh, what I'm saying there now is not rational argument yeah, yeah. for. Yeah, no, like no. I'm just telling you my experience. Yeah. It was like I stay away from the methadone, and like I always had that out option. That, right, if things get really bad, I lock myself into the bedroom for five days and I'll be fine. That was my... But when I but did, went, you, did you have the, the wherewithal to lock yourself in? Or was I don't it like, was like train spotting where no. somebody passing you in the soup and locked yeah. the door? I, I lock myself into my dad's gaff or something. And yeah. I do do... I don't know, I call talk to you a lot of times. But as soon as the physical symptoms leave you... You want the drug again? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And well, that's, that's the comfort of it. That's yeah. the, that's the repetition that's the, in the yeah. mind. Like. Yeah, but you see, when I did eventually get well, it was actually through methadone. Because when I rang Merchants Key Ireland and I told them I was struggling and I was overdosing regularly at the time and I had a very near-death experience and I was homeless and everything. And I rang Merchants Key Ireland and I said, look, I'm fucking, I didn't know what to do, where to go. And I was desperate. And they said, we can get you into a detox and a treatment centre, but you need to be on methadone to do it. And I went through um, Dr. Horan, actually, from 
Dr. Aidan Horn from Alba House. It's a great and, service. Yeah. Aidan, Declan. Uh, and, I, and, Declan yeah, yeah. and I went down to methadone over there, come off the heroin, stabilised my life and got into treatment that way. So when it's used right, methadone is a great drug. Yeah. You know, it's just like it, it certainly helps to stabilize the lifestyle of of uh, take the madness out of you, like because yeah. you run after all the erratic thefts and stuff. Is there anything you'd change about the the way the methadone program is being run in the prison? Would would you change? Like I know some prisoners go in, they're on fifty mils, they stay on the fifty mils for the whole sentence, whatever. Should it be compulsory for? No, I'm just saying this. If there's any fellas, compulsory for detox during the during the committal. It's come down I'd, off. Yeah, I'd say no, right? And the reason I'd say no is I'm just I'm, I'm like, completely naive through yeah, this well, all. Well, risk of overdose yeah, when you get out. So, 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 that, so that, that 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 kind of shoulder period when you come out, kind of like we talked about earlier, like that, like coming back to what you said earlier, right? And you both you both said it about you know kind of having that routine that the, the comradely the lads the, the triads and the cot the, the exercise and the meditation and then coming out and kind of having to take responsibility for yourselves again mm. and that causing anxiety mm. well that makes total sense right but people's perception of coming out of prison isn't that people's like my perception of of being uh, of incarcerated would be that you live for the day you get out you know, and that yeah. you know, and the day you get out is the happiest day of your life. Do you know? Mm. But it, that, but clearly that's not the case for everybody. Well, right? no, when you're inside, or you're longing for it, and you're saying, "When I get out, this and." But when the reality hits you, when you get outside the gate, and it's like, "Where are you gonna go? What are you gonna do? Mm. You've no fucking job. You've no money. You're after wrecking your family. And, you've burned all your bridges. What have you? Only the drugs. And if you haven't got the crutches, the drug in my case, I'd be sober and clean when I came out. Yeah. That's well, when things really start that, to change. That, 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 that's why. Like compulsory detox is probably isn't a good idea yeah. because you know that 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 see lads might I don't know whatever way you measure it right whether it's a hundred euros a day or five bags a day whatever they're using before they go in like if they've been in for nine months they become uh, opium naive again and that like that degree of usage could be a risk to them then because okay. they don't have the tolerance that makes sense so that's why that does make know, sense yeah um that but probably but again if if, if lads want to detox yeah. they, they can just like there's not there now is a weekly addiction clinic now it's not the same through covid and less face-to-face but there is a weekly addiction clinic in Cork prison like uh like the services have and i suppose a couple of things happened um there was a, a prison inspection i think by amnesty probably around the time that you're talking of and they got severely criticised for the addiction services. Um, was a report released recently? Well, the one I'm thinking about now is probably over 10 years old, but okay. there was a new one. And in fairness, they have really invested heavily infrastructure-wise on the IT, on the services, the support services, um, the GP side of it even, you know, the, the amount of nurses in the prison. Uh, like, you know, the, 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 the healthcare infrastructure within the prisons has really, really improved. And the standard of care has risen with that. Yeah, definitely. that's good. Yeah. Mm. Look, one more thing I want to ask you before we finish up, because we've been going for over an hour. Um, because the nature of the work of a GP, you come across a lot of very sick people, obviously. Um, very sad cases. I presume you build good relationships with people. And then if things aren't working out for those people, you feel sad for them and you have connections. And Is there any supervision for a GP? Or would it, is that down to the individual doctor like would you do any uh, therapy every couple of months or? no so 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 i think what you're what you're drawing a parallel with is the that the psychologists have yeah. have a um have a supervision a, a supervision yeah. and eat, like so i was surprised i like, said so there's a very senior psychologist who i send a lot of patients to 
and I was talking to him one day and in the course of the conversation he just said to me when I go to my supervisor I said who is supervising you like you're like mm. this guy is like yeah. this. so so we don't have that kind of debrief but we we do have um uh I suppose uh, a structured continuing professional development program um and now it's self-structured but there's guidance on what you on what you're supposed to do and within that it's in compulsory for every doctor not just general practitioners to keep up to date for a certain amount of hours it's 50 hours every year so that's one hour a week it's not it's not a whole lot yeah. like with covid we've all we're yeah. a lot more than that because we're learning 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 but 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 the but yeah so we so we do have structured uh, um uh, professional development programs but we don't have that that debriefing thing and i think it's a, it's a good point like you know that not just in general practice but like there there is a higher level of addiction among uh doctors uh as a profession than there are in other professions um uh, and so the the i suppose the self-awareness to know when you're in trouble mm-hmm. and we have access to these drugs right so so mm-hmm. doctors have mm-hmm. writing their own script. Well, the, the, would it be it, alcohol? It has happened. Would it be uh, alcohol, uh, or would it be prescribed meds? B- both, both, yeah. but both, both, both. But there's like a beware of several colleagues who would have had mm. difficulties with, prescri- with prescribed meds. Would that be down to the, the sorry, James, uh, the workload of the job? Do you think are the stresses of life I, in I, general? I think everybody's different. Like so, for some colleagues, it might be they genuinely get prescribed a medication for you know break their ankle, you know, mm. and they need some mm. morphine, and you know, all of a sudden. Yeah, morphine, yeah. you know, or or it could be that you know they have a bereavement and they say you know what I, I'll take a steatin tablet for two weeks and all of a sudden it's two years. So I, I'd say it's not one size fits all, but there certainly is there are those those challenges there. And like again, like like of course we're in the help, we're in the helping profession, uh, and our teams are trained to help people. But it's important that people remember mm. that our teams are human too, especially mm. our front of house teams, like. The, there are men and women that come to work to do a job and not to get shouted at because <laughs> Nick Flynn secretaries left and stuff. two uh, <laughs> diazepam short in the prescription or whatever yeah, it is right? yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so like if there was a call to arms at the end of the podcast it would be that like your general practice team is there to help we want to help yeah. that's our job that's why we're in the community but certainly our front of house team like they're like they're really all working very hard really heroic uh, and they could do with appreciation which you get from most people and anybody who's inclined to shout at them please stop <laughs> yeah exactly and look and, and that's a great point to finish on you know so yeah. look um, thanks a million for Thank coming you, on the podcast Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation me too uh, very uh, fra- uh, frank and candid I'd say uh, and I think it'll provide a lot of transparency for people um, that might not know a, lot, a whole lot about this and I think with your honesty and our honesty it might give people into an insight as to the relationship between a GP and somebody in addiction, mental health, um, somebody in prison. Um, yeah, so I just, I enjoyed it, and mm-hmm. I hope you did too. Yeah, very much. Thanks, guys. And, uh, yeah, and best of luck with it. Great. Yeah. And, a great uh, initiative on social entrepreneurship, so congratulations. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And uh, you know what, just before we do finish, uh, I just want to thank you, yourself and George, for all the work you've done, my own family, down through the years, and the work you've done with our community, you know, mm-hmm. and because there's no one saying that, really, because... You have done an awful lot of good. Well, I think and George, helped George an awful in lot particular has been a hero for that. Well, the, the surgery. Well, he yeah. brought her up there. Uh, like he brought he brought the actual service up there initially, and fair play to him, you know, because I, I grew up with George. George was somebody. In my I, I tell George, fast yeah. forward the last two minutes. I know, <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. But anyway, listen. Just thanks, thank lads. you, thank you very much, yeah. and uh, thanks to all the staff 
in um, Nick and George surgery um, for the, the care they provide to the people in the community in City North West. And a big shout out to George. Yeah. And my yeah. Cork GP.ie. And, yeah. my, and my Cork GP.ie. Yeah. Forward slash the two notties. <laughs> <laughs> you can there donate you there. <laughs> By the way, he offered myself and James free GP care for the year as well. <laughs> so, if you get a COVID test every time. <laughs> Well, uh, I see you later. I'll see you next week. Thanks, Rowan. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.